0: You are now listening to the February 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller, and Respectable Sins. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible.
1: Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Justin Kong with Let's Read the Bible. Sometimes we find the weight of food items is not as indicated on its packaging. For example, the weight of a pound of meat may not be quite a pound. It is understandable if it is due to a malfunctioning scale, but it is a different story if the seller intends to deceive buyers. Unfortunately, this happens quite often. We may have seen how sellers press scales with their fingers, put rocks in the bags, or switch bags with pre-packed bags with weights with lesser content right in front of the buyers when they purchase fruits or fish. This does not just simply end at sellers trying to get a little more profit. Such action breaks the trust between the sellers and buyers and develops mistrust with these types of sellers. It causes buyers to doubt sellers from the purchaser's point of view and makes them feel uncomfortable as if they are deceived after the purchase. God does not like such behavior among his people. God's people must not do such things as cheating and deceiving others for profit. Here is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 35 and 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment, and measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Scripture says that God's people must use honest instruments that measure accurately length, weight, or volume. It is a reflection of one's characters as a child of God. It is because the God Jehovah is just God, an honest God. God speaks of living righteously according to his character. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10, it says, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both like an abomination to the Lord. Something of unequalness. People whose standards shift however they want to their profits. Using lenient standards for themselves but using strict standards for others. These are the things that are abominations to God. How about you? Are you living your life by using just, righteous, and honest standards to everyone equally in every situation? Have you ever turned your eyes away from conscience for a small gain? I hope you have not done so and will not do so. God who saved us is honest and righteous. If we are people of such a righteous God, we must live our lives by following His character. God will be glorified through us when we live our lives in such way. Let's read Proverbs chapter twenty verses one to thirty together. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion, whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarrelling. The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Take a man's garments when he has put up security for a stranger, and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance wage war. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. If one curses his mother or his father, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. The glory of young men is through strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Blows that wound cleans away evil, strokes make clean the innermost parts. We just read Proverbs chapter 20 verses 1 to 30 together.
2: Up to something, God is doing something
0: right now. He is healing someone, he is saving someone.
1: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi
0: Tressler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is Post-Tenebras. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor
3: Malachi. One of my favorite singer-songwriters has a line in one of his songs that has struck me since the first time I heard it about six years ago. He asked this question, Are you living the life you chose? Are you living the life that chose you? How might you answer that question? We all intentionally make decisions that steer us through our particular course of life, whether that's for good or for ill. And maybe you've chosen who your spouse would be, or where you live, or what line of work you would go into, or, or who your friends are. All those decisions that you make, of course, have an impact on the direction of the life that you live. However, there are other kinds of events in our lives that we do not or would not choose, if we could, that also have very serious effects on the direction of the trajectory of our lives, whether that's a disease or an injury or the loss of someone dear to you or a financial ruin, violent acts committed against you. And so with that in mind, those two categories, I'll pose the question again, are you living the life you chose or are you living the life that chose you? In our modern day, when we hear that sort of a question, it lands with an implicit judgment sort of wrapped up in it. We are trained to think in our modern day and age that we are the captains of our own ships. So if we're not living the life that we chose, something's wrong. That We must be doing our lives wrong because we need to impose our wills. We need to assert our wills over reality. We need to live the life that we want to choose but that's not how reality works. The only legitimate response to that question, I believe, is both. Uh, life rarely gives us such a clear either or vision of life, where it's the life that you choose or the life that chooses you. It's just such, it's just not that simple. We live the lives we choose, of course, yet much of the direction of our lives is obviously outside of our control. We're going to be going through the book of Ruth for the next four Sundays, one chapter at a time. The book of Ruth is a really well artistically crafted story. It's a story that illustrates the mysterious providence of God that plays out through human decisions and choices. Even in this one first chapter here that we've just had read for us, Elimelech and Naomi choose to leave Bethlehem. They choose to go to Moab. Uh, Their sons choose to marry uh, the daughters of foreign gods. Ruth chooses, of course, to cling to Naomi, her mother-in-law. She chooses to return to Bethlehem with her. This narrative, this story, has no direct speech from God. God is, of course, in the background of every portion, every verse of this narrative, but we can't trace out exactly what's happening or why. We don't understand fully his actions, his intentions, with the same degree of clarity that we can when he explicitly gives us his own interpretation of our life's events. The book of Ruth, then, is actually much more like our own lives. In chapter 1, Naomi begins with grief, she begins with emptiness. By chapter 4, she ends with joy and she ends with fullness. But we, uh, being outside of the story, have the benefit of reading this thing in retrospect. We get to know the end of her story even as we're starting the beginning of it. And that's not the case for ourselves. That is not how our lives work. So we're going to walk through this book one chapter at a time with different scenes. So, in keeping with the artistic narrative of the book of Ruth, I've got a big idea that is a little bit unique. It's actually just a line from a hymn. In 1774, William Cooper wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And so we're just going to use verse 4 of his hymn for our big idea. It's this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. First, the overture. The first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both malon and kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband so this book opens with these five verses that act like an overture it's a prologue it's giving a brief summary of everything that we need to know before the narrative the story officially starts in the days when the judges ruled when there was a famine now, of course, this is an expertly crafted story, but just to be clear, this involves real history. Uh, these are real people involved here. It's not a fairy tale. This involves the real experience of real people in real times and real places. And the real historical setting for this narrative is the period in Israel's history between the conquest of Canaan, that promised land, and the establishment of the monarchy. So Israel has is entered into the land but they don't have a kingdom set up yet. So it's that time between Joshua, the one who brought them into the land, who came after Moses, right? He led them into the land, and it's between that period and when Saul would be their first king. And we read about this long period of time in Israel's history, the days of the judges, in the book of Judges that book that was just before Ruth in our Bible. So that's the backdrop of the book of Ruth. It was about a 350-year period of time, depending on how we want to calculate it. And within this period of Judges, there was a cycle, a recurring cycle. If you read the, the book of Judges, you'll see this pattern playing out over and over again. The people would rebel against God. They would turn to foreign gods and worship them in idolatry. They would rebel against God's law. And as a consequence... Foreign nations would come in, they would conquer Israel, and they would oppress the Israelites. Then they would cry out to God to be delivered from these oppressors, and so God would raise up someone he would call judge. This judge would be a deliverer, and that judge would be given the task of delivering God's people from the oppressors. And after that deliverance happened, there would be a season of stability, a season of rest in the land. They would turn. They would seek God. But inevitably, as time passed, they would fall back into idolatry, back into sin, and that cycle, sadly, would start over again. Well, Ruth, apparently, is taking place during a period of rebellion because there's famine in the land. That famine was the result of Israel's disobedience. And so the time of Judges is mostly just a dark time. There are glimpses of hope in here every once in a while, but that cycle just keeps continuing. Uh, In fact, the most repeated phrase in the book of Judges is this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Judges 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that sets us up then for the first bit of irony in the book of Ruth, because the very first character in Ruth to be named is called Elimelech which means literally translated my god is king and yet here is Elimelech apparently doing what is right in his own eyes because he leaves the promised land the famine had hit Judah Bethlehem where he was living with his wife and two sons and so he makes the decision to leave the promised land that God had given to Israel and said, this is your land that I'm giving to you for your generations. And they went to Moab. They sojourned in Moab. Now, Moab was one of the kingdoms who actually oppressed Israel during that time of the judges. One of their kings actually ruled over Israel for a period of time. Moab was not friendly with Israel. The Moabites worshipped a false god named Chemosh, sometimes through child sacrifice even. But not only did Elimelech sojourned there, our text actually says that he stayed there. They remained there. This was not a temporary thing. He stayed there actually for quite some time. Another bit of irony is that the city that they formerly lived in, is called Bethlehem, which literally translates as house of bread. Well, there was no bread in the house of bread. There was no bread in Bethlehem. And so Elimelech chooses to leave. He leaves with his wife, Naomi. And Naomi means pleasant or sweet Uh, that is what her name means if we translated it and as she leaves they leave with their two sons malon and kilion and at some point elimelech died we're given no details about the circumstances it comes as a bit of a shock and then it moves on quickly it says the sons took wives from moab malon and kilion married ruth and orpah as they're named in our text and they lived there in moab for about 10 years Then we get another brief statement informing us that Naomi's sons both died and neither marriage had provided any children. So now, Naomi was left in a foreign land without the family that she brought with her. She had two daughters-in-law, but she wasn't even really truly related to them directly anymore. So these verses help us understand the backdrop. Here's the conflict as soon as this narrative begins. We have this family from Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah, Elimelech. The husband is from the tribe of Judah, and they have these two sons. But a famine happens, and these Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah leave the promised land. They go out from where the land that God had given to them to Moab, which is outside of the promised land. And all three of the men in her family died within ten years. Neither of her sons had any children of their own. Naomi is left without anyone. To, to personally provide for her, to protect her. She's apparently pretty advanced in age. Uh, we read later that she is beyond childbearing age. And so these first five verses set up the gloomy backdrop of this story. Naomi left because of a famine of food, but since she left the land, she's experienced a famine of family. So if we read carefully, we are not given any clear stated reasons for the gloomy situation that Naomi finds herself in. We naturally have questions. We read something like this and we're like, well, why is this happening? Was it judgment upon Elimelech and the family because they decided to leave God's promised land? Was it because their their sons married these daughters of the foreign gods? Is that why this happened? Or were Naomi's bitter circumstances unrelated to any discernible cause? Well, it seems that the narrator leaves this intentionally unanswered. Much like our own lives, we don't have access to the whole story. So was Naomi living the life she chose or was she living the life that chose her? We're not really given the option of a clear either-or to that question. So we should be careful and blaming Naomi or her family for the condition that they found themselves in. So these verses introduce the problem. Naomi is left. She is bereaved. She's in a foreign land without food or protection or family. But as soon as verse 6, we begin to see some glimmers of light peering into the darkness. Scene 1. Ruth clings to Naomi and takes refuge in the Lord. Verse 6. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and had given them food. So it appears that that cycle of judgment and rebellion and blessing has ended. How It's come full circle. God has visited His people. One of the very few direct statements we get about the activity of God in this book it says Yahweh visited His people and He gave to them food. Literally, the word translated there is bread. And we continue, verse 7 through 9. And so she sets out from the place that she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So they're on their way back to Bethlehem, and Naomi begins to encourage Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, to return back to their own land. So they're in between Moab and Bethlehem, and Naomi's like, you guys should just turn back. You're still young enough to be remarried. You probably would just have better opportunities in Moab. So Naomi tries to bless them. We can see it there in verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you, she says. Literally, may he show his steadfast love to you. Has said is going to be an important word and phrase and concept throughout this book. And so Orpah and Ruth both have been kind towards Naomi. She appreciates that. But it seems that it would be their best option, difficult though it is, to part ways. Verses 10 through 14. They said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. So they don't want to leave Naomi. They've lifted up their voices in lament. And now they begin to respectfully disagree with Naomi. So Naomi does her best to convince them, no, this is the best option. I know this is difficult, but this is going to be best. And so she says, don't stay with me. I'm not going to be able to give you the help that you guys really need. Even if I got married again, I wouldn't be able to have sons. And even if I could have sons, they would take up forever to grow up to be old enough to be your husband's. You're not going to have anything that's going to be beneficial from me. It would multiply Naomi's grief, it says, to know that these two young women would be tangled up into her own gloomy situation. And so they cry over the bitterness of the situation, and Orpah gets the message. Sounds good. She turns back to go to Moab. Ruth, however, was not buying it. Ruth clung to Naomi, it says, despite the fact that Naomi had nothing to offer her. In fact, only darkness and mystery and pain was ahead. And so Naomi tries to convince her again, verses 15 through 18. She said, see, your sister-in-law, she's gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now Orpah, at this point, had set back to go back to Moab, back to her people, back to that false god, Kamosh. Naomi then suggested that Ruth just do the same thing. This will be easier for everybody involved, but Ruth is not having it. She says, stop asking me to leave you. This is getting a little bit awkward. We're in this thing together. Verse 16 is the central point of this chapter. Verse 16, that phrase, your people should be my people and your God, my God, should stick out to us. If we have familiarity with the Old Testament, that's a phrase that recurs a lot. Initially, when God enters into a covenant with his people Israel, That is the phrase that he gives that sort of summarizes this covenantal relationship between them. You will be my people, and I will be your God. That's a covenantal statement. And over and over again, God would keep that phrase out in front of his people. Return to me. He would invite them, you stubborn, stiff-necked people. Return to me with your whole hearts, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And this is the language that Ruth is using. And she even amplifies it in verse 17. She's amplifying that language of covenant because it comes with a curse even. She invokes a curse on herself if she breaks the covenant. She says, it says essentially, may Yahweh take my life if I ever leave you. So, it's not clear to us when this happened, but it is clear to us that it happened. Ruth has converted to faith in the true and living God. So not only is Ruth clinging to Naomi, showing her steadfast, faithful, loyal love, she is clinging to Yahweh. She is taking refuge in the Lord. And it's striking to me to notice actually how this plays out in the narrative. Notice, Naomi tells her in verse 13, she says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is painting a very bleak picture a dark picture of a future with Naomi in Israel this is not the most enticing evangelistic message and yet Ruth says hey stop pushing me back listen to me I've been converted she is devoted to the God of Israel and this becomes even more clear to us later on in the narrative in chapter 2 verse 12 where it says that Ruth has come to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so Naomi's starting to get the picture. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined, she stopped trying to talk her out of it. And that's all it says, actually. That's the end of the conversation. She just stops the conversation. We might have expected that Naomi would respond, Wow, what an amazing expression of faithfulness. May the Lord bless you for your steadfast love and kindness toward me. May your words be enshrined in Hobby Lobbies around the world and future generations. (laughs) But she doesn't. And we don't want to read too much into Naomi's silence, but it doesn't seem that she's all that excited about Ruth clinging to her. At this point, it seems that Ruth is more of a burden to Naomi than a blessing for her to hold on to. And that becomes a little bit more clear as we Continue reading. Notice the final four verses of this first chapter where the scene is shifting back to Bethlehem. This would be scene two. And Naomi returns empty just in time for harvest. Verses 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, we need to remember that this story began with Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons moving from Bethlehem to Moab. They've moved out of Israel, seeking greener pastures, as it were, outside of the promised land. And they've been gone, they were gone for about 10 years, but the famine in the land has ended, and so Naomi is returning. And those who didn't leave Bethlehem, who were remaining in the promised land, well, they must have recognized Naomi when she came back. The whole town was buzzing about her return, is what the text says. Naomi had left with a husband and two sons, and yet now she's returning without any of them. Uh, only a daughter-in-law from a foreign land. So this might have caused quite a stir, quite a buzz. What happened? And we get a play on words here, actually, in verse 20. It's a play on words. As we mentioned, uh, Naomi means pleasant or sweet. But she suggests that her friends give her a new nickname. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. So she says, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. And she gives the reason for the Almighty, uh, El Shaddai, the all-powerful, sovereign God, has dealt very bitterly with me. I left Bethlehem with a full family and I've come back without them. I left full, I returned empty. So can you sympathize with Naomi? She's faced so much misery. The famine in Bethlehem to begin with, the death of her husband, no grandchildren to carry on the family name, the death of both of her sons, she might be at this point just completely emotionally drained. Uh, When a believer faces that level of suffering, we have a couple choices to make. Either I can continue to trust and love God knowing that He will do whatever is right even when I don't understand it or you can become resentful and bitter. And we saw that bitter resentment with Job's wife. When she was exposed to you and facing an amazing amount of grief, she urged her husband to just curse God and die. But what's happening here with Naomi is a little harder to figure out. Earlier, if you remember, she said that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. And now she says that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with her. She said that the Lord brought her back empty, that the Lord has testified against her, and that the Almighty has brought calamity upon her. She doesn't seem to be confused about what's happening here. This is her perspective on reality. She seems to see a direct correlation between her behavior and God's providence. That's clear in the statement that God has testified against her. One of the things that she says here in this verse Almost as if God has brought her up on charges of leaving the promised land and has testified now against her and has declared her guilty and has sentenced her to a life of grief. So here's a question that I wrestled with a lot in thinking through this passage. Is Naomi just telling it like it is? Or is she bitter towards God? Is she describing the bitterness of her circumstances? Is that what she means by bitterness? Or is she giving words to the bitterness that is in her own heart? It seems that it's a mixture of both. Again, not always so clear-cut. There must be some level of resentment or bitterness that has settled in because she hasn't exactly returned empty. Ruth is probably standing right next to her when she says this. She just dedicated her life to Naomi, remember? But Naomi doesn't seem to see any value in her. It's possible that the emotional toll of grief and the bitterness towards God and the hand of the Almighty has kept Naomi from seeing the benefit, the blessing that is right beside her. But it's not so simple. Because we remember that we read in chapter 1, Naomi's own words to those daughters-in-law. In verse 8, on the way back to Bethlehem, Naomi knew that the Lord deals kindly. In fact, that's what she tried to bless them with. May the Lord bless you. May he act kindly towards you. And so from Naomi's own words, it's clear that she still believes that God exists. In the face of this affliction and suffering, she believes that God exists. She believes that God is sovereign over all things. That's evident. And she also believes that God has afflicted her. And she still believes that the Lord can deal kindly. All of these things are evident here in this first chapter, her own words. But maybe he's only... Kind towards other people. Maybe he's no longer kind towards me. In suggesting a new nickname for herself, sweet Naomi is doing more than simply giving us a cute play on words. She's giving words to how she feels. She's giving words to how she sees herself. She views her identity as one who is bitter, uh, discontent, perhaps even angry, her personhood would now be defined by her bitter circumstances. Call me this. This is who I am. This is how she sees herself. And when you see yourself as a victim, you may begin to lose sight of God's kindness towards you. Sure, Naomi's miseries have been many, and we do not at all want to undermine that. But her blessings aren't to be underestimated either. Uh, The famine has ended. She's allowed to go back home. And she has a dedicated companion and friend in Ruth who shares now her same faith in the Lord. Bitterness has a tendency to exaggerate our suffering. Instead of counting her blessings and naming them one by one, she's accumulating a list of grievances and sort of chewing on it. It's important to note, once again, the narrator does not explicitly tie her family's actions to her suffering but it does seem to be Naomi's perspective there are examples of suffering we need to recognize in scripture that happen not because of the choices that we make this is true in scripture this is true in our own lives there are examples of suffering that enters our lives not because of the choices that we make and so we are mistaken if in every circumstance we make direct correlations between bitter circumstances in our lives and sin. In Jesus' ministry, he was passing through a town and his disciples and he saw a man who was blind from his birth. And the disciples asked him the same sort of questions I would imagine that you and I would ask Jesus if we're walking along and see this man who was born blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned? Was it this guy or his parents? That he was born blind. That is a question that we would often run to. What is the cause of this man's suffering? Someone has to be to blame. He must have done something. But this is confusing, because if he was born blind, what could he have done before he was born? So, uh, maybe his parents did something. Maybe his parents did something wrong, and that's why he was born with this affliction. Ah, Jesus responds by blowing up the categories. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Christ heals his sight. This man born blind from birth, his affliction was an opportunity for God to manifest his compassion and his mercy and his sovereignty and his goodness and so when we interpret the relationship of sin and suffering like that, we lose our ability to see clearly. We focus on our own suffering, the suffering others, and we don't focus on God. All we can see is the wrong, and we become numb to the abundance of God's mercies that surround us. Naomi's situation was nuanced, to be sure. She knew who God was, she knew how he acted, but her Perspective became skewed and her bitterness changed her view of herself and it kept her from rightly seeing God's goodness and His blessings. Bitterness can prevent us from seeing the good that God is working through our circumstances. And in this moment of the story, we're left though to wonder whether God has our best interests at heart sometimes in life. Like Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, And when that happens, we just need to turn back to the gospel. Do we question whether God loves us? He showed us his love in sending us his son. The only truly innocent man intentionally sought out suffering, not because he deserved it. There was no confusion about that. But because we deserved it. He took on the ultimate suffering in our place. And on the cross, the Almighty El Shaddai's God's hand went out in judgment against Christ in bitterness so that we wouldn't need to taste the bitterness of that judgment, but only the sweetness of His grace. So consider Jesus' covenant commitment to His God and His people. If you have confusion about God's love, return to the gospel. Remember that Christ has clung to His people Christ will never turn back. And not even death itself would be able to keep him from fulfilling his commitment to his people. And if you're wondering whether you're living the life you chose or you're living the life that chose you, here is one area in which you can make a very meaningful decision about the trajectory of your life. Repent and believe. Put your faith in Christ and find shelter and salvation under His wings. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior.
2: Storms are this alive. I won't turn back.
0: Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the lord heart and soul gospel ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the lord directly to the hearts of listeners if you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of jesus christ and deliver the saving grace of our lord to others through volunteering through prayer and through donations Please call us at 602-866-8999. The following program is called Respectable Sins.
4: Dear listeners, this is Terry, the host of Respectable Sins. We are exploring subtle yet significant sins that exist in our lives. We have been discussing how to recognize them and how to deal with these sins by reading together Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, Confronting Sins We Tolerate. Today, we will talk about the sin of pride. Like irreverence or lack of respect, pride is often considered the root of all other sins. What comes to your mind when you think of pride? While praying, you might confess, Lord, I have been prideful. What image of yourself do you see when you confess that? When you point to another person and say, that person is so proud, what behavior or action of that person makes you say that? Commonly, we associate pride with having a high self-esteem, regarding oneself as being more important than others, wanting to be more popular than others, refusing to compliment deserving individuals, and excessive self-love. In essence, pride originates from self-centered thinking. Further, pride manifests in various ways, such as showing off, boasting, belittling others, considering oneself superior, disrespecting others, and ignoring others' advice. From the biblical perspective, it reflects not acknowledging God's sovereignty, thinking one's thoughts are superior to God's, believing that one can live without God's help, and not praying or not expressing gratitude. Jerry Bridges discusses several forms of pride in his book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. First, he talks about the pride of self-righteousness. He points to the Pharisee highlighted in Luke 18, 11. This Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This Pharisee was self-righteous, immersed in moral superiority over those he listed. Jerry suggests that we might be, in fact, guilty of harboring similar. We could very well think to ourselves, I am better than that person, or I am not as bad as those. When we do, we are guilty of self-righteousness like that Pharisee. Have you ever thought to yourself, oh, that deacon committed such sins. Compared to them, I'm really doing okay. Jerry Bridges would call this mindset moral superiority or self-righteousness. In today's society, we face varying types of dark behaviors. We encounter homosexuality, abortion, drunk driving, drugs, fraud, greed, and more. Christians may not explicitly commit these sins. However, Jerry points out that Christians can easily fall into the sin of moral superiority or self-righteousness when looking at those who commit such sins. If we think about it a bit, we would find ourselves agreeing with Jerry. We often cast disdainful glances at others who commit such sin we have never committed ourselves. We might be saying, I would never commit those sins like they do. This attitude would then be similar to one exhibited by the Pharisee. If we are praying, we would say something like, I have never engaged in a homosexuality, drunk driving, fraud, or greed like them. Thank you, God, that I am not like them. As Christians then, how should we react when we encounter people committing these sins? We should begin by recognizing God's grace is working within us, granting us a life apart from those sins. We should feel grateful for being saved from a life entangled in such sins, and first and foremost, we should give thanks to God for His grace. When we didn't know God, we lived in those sins, not even understanding what sin was. Therefore, we should naturally offer thanks to God for being free from those sins through his grace. Second, Jerry mentions the doctrinal pride. Many of us adhere quite rigidly to our own Christian doctrines, believing they are the only correct ones, dismissing others' beliefs. Jerry highlights how those who have been keen interests in doctrines can easily fall into the sin of pride. They might express opinions like, I follow this particular doctrine and others are incorrect criticizing different beliefs. Such individuals can easily display arrogance and even ignorance. They are dismissing doctrines they are unfamiliar with. While it's essential to have faith in the doctrines of the Bible, it is crucial to hold these beliefs with humility. There is nothing wrong with Christians attaining theological knowledge about the biblical teachings. However, they should also realize that there are many learned people with different beliefs and perspectives that may not share their doctrinal beliefs. They should adopt an attitude of always being willing to learn, setting example of a humble Christian. The third type of pride Jerry mentions is the pride in success, attributing success as one's own accomplishments. There is a common saying in Korea, if things go well, it's my doing. If not, it's my ancestors' fault. It points to a person's pride. Such attitudes are found even among Christians. When things don't go well, some blame God, complaining how God could let things happen that way. However, when things go well, they attribute it to their own abilities and skills. How much do you think God intervenes in your life? How much control do you believe God exerts over your life? In other words, do you believe everything you currently enjoy and possess came from God? In fact, some might argue, but I earned my money through hard work. How can this be a gift from God? My idea was excellent, and I managed my business well. How is this God's grace? My child studied hard and got into a good university. Why should I give glory to God for this? Whether or not you harbor some of these sentiments, Jerry asserts unequivocally that there is nothing we possess that is not a gift from God. Our intellectual abilities, innate talents, good health, and ability to work hard and be successful, all these things have come from God. Nothing we have is without God's grace. Failing to recognize this can lead to arrogance and pride. While some people openly display their pride, some do not. They have learned the craft of concealing their pride. For example, the pride in one's own achievements or the accomplishments of one's children can be hidden for the most part. That is until it shows up in subtle ways. When someone says, our child was fortunate to get into such and such top university, the hidden meaning is, our child is truly intelligent, please praise him. This sentiment reflects the sin of pride, according to Jerry Bridges. In fact, most of us harbor such thoughts. In such situations, what should be the appropriate attitude of a true Christian? Suppose your son graduated top in his class. Jerry suggests the following. Our son John successfully graduated from his university. We acknowledge and thank God for giving John such intellectual capabilities. We are teaching him to use these abilities to serve others and glorify God. May he become a faithful steward of God. This should be the response of a humble Christian. Our attitude as Christians should be to serve others and glorify God through everything we possess. Recognizing the sinful craving for others' praises and acknowledgement Jerry introduces a principle from the Bible that can help us. It is the word of Jesus in Luke 17 10. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. This verse teaches us to always maintain an attitude of humility, saying, I have only done what I was supposed to do. We should examine the sin of pride within ourselves. This concludes today's discussion on the sin of pride. We bid you goodbye until next time from Respectable Sins.